Well, good morning, friends. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open those to the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. For our scripture reading today, we'll be in John chapter 20 for our time in reading the scripture. We'll read from verses 10 through 29. It's a little bit longer of a section than we normally go, but I would encourage you to kind of hang in there with us. Uh, if you do not know, I'm Byron Brash, I'm the pastor here at Calvary Bible Church. I just want to say thank you for being here today. And today we're reading John chapter 20, verses 10 through 29, and what we see is that Jesus appears. He appears for the first time to three different groups of people. Two weeks ago we saw the crucifixion, we saw him hung on a tree on the hill of Golgotha, last week we saw the resurrection at the end of 19 and the beginning of 20, and then today we see him appear to three different groups of people. But what, what I want you to kind of grasp before we read the scripture is the state of their faith. Mary Magdalene, the ten disciples, and Thomas, all of them are hanging on to their faith by a thread. We, they are in the middle of a crisis of belief, and then Jesus appears, and he speaks right to them in that space. Notice the text with me. But Mary, instead of going home, she returns to the tomb. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping, sobbing. And so as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw... Two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. Verse 13. And I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, so what's really going on here? She is so distraught that she doesn't recognize the beaming people in the tomb in Jesus. Okay. So woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener. And she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Then she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brother and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene then came. She ran, probably announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, on that Sunday, this is scene number two, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Why? The disciples then rejoiced. Of course they would when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, which means twin, must have been a twin, okay, uh, was like me, I'm a twin, if y'all didn't know that. There you go. Was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So then after eight days, his disciples were again inside, for fear of the Jews, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. 
Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my master and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Amen. That says the Lord. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to go ahead and open those to the Gospel of John. John chapter 20 is where we will be today. Today, as I've already mentioned, Jesus appears to three different groups of people. One to Mary, to the ten disciples, and then to Thomas and the other ten at that time. And to each of those groups, their faith is hanging on by a thread. That when he appears, each group of people are in the middle of a crisis of belief. To each, they barely hang on. And what I love about the Jesus' Jesus's appearances in John chapter 20 is that Jesus meets them right there. But allow me to start off by asking you a question. I would encourage you to raise your hand if you are bold enough. But, I mean... These are pretty safe questions because it's just life. Um, how many of you have ever dealt with a crisis before? Okay. Everybody over the age of like five. Okay. Uh, that's just the nature of life. And, and one of the things I like to say is that if you live long enough, you will experience crisis and tragedy. Amen? All right. Now, now this is a little bit more vulnerable, but it, I want you to raise your hand to this one. How many of you have ever wanted to walk away from the Christian faith. Me, too. We are all, at one time or another, whether we admit it or not, whether we hide it or not, at one time or another, we are at times just so over, so done with the Christian faith, just want to walk away from it all. And that's where I want to talk to today. That's the space I want to enter. Because every single Christian, every single Old Testament saint, and every Christian that has ever lived, at one time or another, has just said to themselves, I am through with it all. One of the most godly and righteous men that I know said to me not too long ago that he has quit Christianity at least 25 times. So today I want to talk to you about faith, but not the faith that we show other people, the faith that's below the surface, the the crisis of faith. Today I want to talk about faith in real life. I want to get down to the nitty gritty, to real life itself. Now, let's just first define something. What is faith? Okay, so um, I'm going to use this as an illustration, and musicians, I'm sorry if you're using this stool, I apologize, but I'm just going to take it anyway, so I'm sorry if it's your music stand. Okay, Um, this is faith, and perhaps you've seen this illustration before, it works really well. This is faith. Now, faith is not, the stool looks sturdy, it looks like it would hold me, intellectually, I know that it looks strong, that somebody probably made this did special care to it or whatever. I know that somebody else sat on it before. Faith is not knowledge. Can I just say something real quick? This is not in my notes or whatever. But a lot of Christians stay there. 
They know the truth of the gospel, but they never actually have faith. Faith is trusting something. It's not just knowing something, but it's actually placing your weight upon something that you oftentimes are intangible, that you cannot see, taste, or touch. This is our faith in God. We cannot see Him. But we must trust Him by faith. We are encouraged in the scripture, in, in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that we walk by faith and not by sight. But at times... Faith can be fleeting. One time or another, we probably understood that God would hold us up, that God saved us. And probably other times we actually trusted Him. But at times in life, our faith just... We just want to be done with it. When you face tragedy or uncertainty, when you go through struggles in life, we oftentimes just want to shove our faith over to the side and just wipe our hands clean of it all. Can anybody relate to that? I mean, am I just the only one in the room that, that has ever felt that way? Faith feels like a vapor, looking solid one moment, only to vanish the next. Faith is like holding sand in your hand. Our faith can seem to change day to day. One day, we probably feel on fire for God, and then the next day, we feel like a pile of ash. At one time or another, we are each doubting Thomas. Just this week, about tw- about twice a year. I mean, and you, and this is weird to some people because when I was in the audience at one time, actually in the pews that you sit in buried today, I looked at this guy up here as kind of this uh, impenetrable, bulletproof dude that has never had struggles, that never had any sin issues or never any faith issues. But but that's just not reality. It's because I'm human being, and and it, about twice a year. I just kind of go through a Doubting Thomas phase where the enemy will come into my mind and into my ear and say, Byron, I don't, can you really trust God? Is God who he says he truly is? Even this week, I struggle with those very questions. We each struggle. Every godly saint of the Old Testament has crisis moments of faith. So let me just ask you the question right where we are today. Where is your faith? On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being I'm ready to be done with it, kicking the stool over, and 10 being never stronger than ever. I don't know if that made any sense whatsoever. Where is your faith today on a scale of 1 to 10? If you're on the low side, be comforted. Because today we see Mary Magdalene, we see Thomas, we see the ten disciples in the middle of a crisis of faith. They don't know what to do because their Savior, their Messiah, their leader just died. And if you remember the story, he was buried. And then the next day they come on Sunday morning, what do they find? They found his body completely missing, that this is the bottom of their life. Their faith is hanging on by a thread. And that's where we pick up today. Jesus appears to three different groups of people, each in the middle of their own crisis of belief. And for clarity today, let us kind of establish the playing field. Let us kind of put up our boundaries, our out-of-bounds, our end zones, and understand the field of faith. Let us first define what we're actually talking about. What is faith? It comes from the Greek word, the noun is pistis, and the verb is pistuo. Okay, that helps no one. Okay, but they're the same. Believing and faith in the New Testament are actually the same. According to the dictionary, faith is defined as the complete trust or confidence in someone or something. 
Biblically, faith is defined best by Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What does that mean? One translation says this, The fundamental fact of existence is that faith is trust in God. This faith is the firm foundation of everything that makes life worth living. It is our handle of what we cannot see. We present to the world, we present to other believers like we have no, we have an unshakable faith, that we show a steady hand, but really beneath the surface our faith often quivers in distress. Sometimes our faith is like this, and sometimes it is standing firm. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether you want to show it or not, every single Christian that has ever lived has struggled with a crisis moment of faith. When they go through trial, when they go through fear, when they go through uncertainty, when they go through tragedy, when they go through grief, whatever it is, there's a, there's a slew of circumstances that can happen that cause people to doubt everything that they have believed. I mean, think about the Old Testament saints of old. Think about Abraham. The, the father of a nation, the father of faith itself, left his homeland. And what did he do once he arrived in the land of Canaan? He got fearful and he gave his wife away. Okay, okay. That didn't sound like faith. Think about Noah. This man spent years building an ark when he saw no rain. And then when he returned, what happened? He got drunk and he took off all his clothes. Strange story. Think about Peter. He had faith to get out of the boat. And then the next second, he feared the waves. We all, at times, feel just like Mary Magdalene, just like Thomas, just like the ten disciples, where our faith just seems like it's holding on by a thread. But today, Jesus meets them there. He comes to them as a good shepherd, and he does three different things to assure them of their faith. That's what we see in John chapter 20. We see three different scenes. We see Mary Magdalene, the ten, and then we see the doubting Thomas in our text today. And if you have your text, just kind of paint the picture of where we are. Kind of the question we are seeking to answer today is how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something that happened 2,000 years ago in a, in a nation that we've probably ne- never been to halfway around the world, how does that resurrection shape and strengthen my faith in the midst of tragedy or in the midst of a crisis of belief. But in order to really understand this text, we must kind of paint the picture of the context. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit more extensive time this morning painting the context of John chapter 20, verses 10 through 29. Why? It's because this is really the end of Passion Weekend. We actually finish Sunday in John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 25. So to paint the picture of our redemption, what happened over the last 72 hours? Okay, go back with me to John chapter 13. What happened there? In John chapter 13 through 16, what is that clause? It's called the Upper Room Discourse. And where is Jesus when he actually does, uh, shares that discourse with his 12 disciples. He is in the upper room. So we call that the upper room discourse. And there, what does he do at the end of John chapter 14? He leaves the upper room. He leaves this instruction and the Passover meal. And then he heads through the streets of Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives, just east of the city of Jerusalem. And there he waits. He leaves the upper room Thursday night at 10 p.m. Fast forward four hours. He is up on the Mount of Olives. And who finds him there? Judas Iscariot, his friend turned foe, shows up on the Mount of Olives to arrest 
his Lord and his Savior. And Judas sells out the, the king of kings for a measly 30 pieces of silver or $1,000. He finds him there on the Mount of Olives with a Roman ho- cohort to arrest him by torch and sword. And then what happens... Friday at 2 a.m., Judas finds him on the Mount of Olives. Then what happens from Friday at 2 a.m. to 6 a.m.? Jesus is dragged off the Mount of Olives, and he goes to court with three different Jewish trials. Trial number one is before Annas. Trial number two is before Caiaphas. Trial number three is before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. In between the hours of Friday of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., most of us are asleep during that period. Amen. Okay, unless there's just something going on. He is tried. And then what happens? At John chapter 18, verse 28, it says, Proe, it was early. And Jesus, at sunrise on Friday morning, is brought before Pilate, the Roman governor, to be tried and to be executed. What is Jesus, what, what is Jesus found guilty of in each trial before the Jewish people? Okay. He is the defendant in those three trials, and they find him guilty of blasphemy. What's the irony of that statement? Is that they convict Jesus of what he was. That he claims in the Jewish trials to be God, and he is God. If Jesus Christ is not God himself, then let's pack up our bags and go home. Because only God could pay for the sins of the world in his perfection. Jesus then is taken before Pontius Pilate at sunrise on Friday morning. Probably about 6.30. And Pilate, very quickly, the Roman governor over Judea, what does he find out? He finds out that Jesus is completely innocent of all wrong. Which is important because only a spotless, blameless Lamb of God can pay and take away the sins of the world. Amen? So what does Pilate do? He tries everything in his power not to murder, not to crucify, not to kill an innocent man. So Pilate resorts to six different acts to try to get out of this. Plan number one, Pilate proclaims him to be innocent. Plan number two, plan B, is he tells the Jewish nation, okay, you can choose between Barabbas and Jesus. And who do they choose? They don't choose the murderer and the insurrectionist and the robber. They choose the innocent man to be crucified. Then Pilate, okay, he tried that. And then what does he try next? He tries plan C. Instead of just, he, what Pilate tries to do, he tries to just get rid of Jesus. He tries to pawn him off, so to speak, onto Herod, because Jesus is from Herod's jurisdiction, and that is Pilate's plan C, and then he, Jesus returns, plan D, Pilate has him scourged, plan E, is Pilate then has Jesus before all of the crowds, and all of the scourging, and whipping, and his, his internal organs showing for the world to see, and he hopes that that would satisfy the bloodthirsty crowd, and then Pilate finally capitulates, he finally forfeits plan F, and he hands Jesus over to be crucified about lunchtime. So let me put this all in perspective. So what what did you do on Thursday? Thursday night at 10 p.m. Some of us were probably asleep. But think about all of the things that happened since Thursday at 10 p.m. in this story. Jesus is arrested. He is tried. He is, he is then sent to be crucified Friday at lunchtime. Jesus, at lunchtime, around noon, laid on the cross with nails driven in his quivering hands and feet. He was then dropped into the hill of the skull. Naked, hanging on a tree, waiting to die. And there Jesus was crucified, despite his innocence. There our Savior, our King, our Messiah, and the Lamb of God hung naked on a tree on the hill of the skull, outside the city for the entire nation to see. Yet for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame.
Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus did not see the cross as an implement of torture and shame. He saw it as a way to satisfy and to pay for the sins of the world. Because on that cross, what did Jesus say? He said, to tell us thy, it is finished. The atonement of man's sin is complete, and all of the Father's will is finished. That happens Friday at noon. What, so Jesus then is hanging on the cross. He exclaims, it is finished, and then he dies. Friday before sunset. And then what happens? We talked about this last week. Joseph of Arimathea, this secret disciple, this guy that does not want to come out as a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, he comes out at this moment, he takes Jesus' body off of the hill of the school, takes him and places him before sunset on Friday, places him in his own most hallowed ground, in his own burial plot, in his tomb that he paid for. And there Jesus laid for three days, Friday night, all day Saturday and Sunday morning. And then what happens? Jesus rises from the dead. Amen? He resurrects before sunrise. There is a violent earthquake. The stone is rolled back. And the Roman guards have a, a divine amnesia or anesthesia, whatever you want to call it. They don't know what's going on. And then they wake up and they look in the tomb and Jesus' body is gone. And then they, then they run. To the chief priest that hired them. Not a good idea for the soldiers. They should have just gone home. And Jesus resurrected. But then what happened after that? John chapter 20 verses 1 and 2. That Sunday morning. Thursday is when the upper room happened. Sunday morning right at sunrise. Proway Mary Magdalene. She goes to the tomb. And what does she find? She finds the stone rolled away. And the linens empty. And the face cloth, remember that? The face cloth bundled up, rolled aside, and set to a corner. And she thinks what? John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This says this, this is Mary Magdalene speaking. So she ran and came to Simon Peter. Excuse me, I'll read back up. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. This is Sunday at sunrise, verse 2, so Mary ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. What does she think? She doesn't think that Jesus raised from the dead. She thinks that somebody stole his body. This is the bottom of the bottom, the, the last semblance of comfort that she had is that she knew where her Savior was laid. And that's even been taken away from her. She doesn't know what happened. She thinks his body is gone. And so she runs to the disciples. And what do they think? They think that Jesus has failed. They are fearful. They are confused. They are afraid. And they think that Jesus has failed. But Jesus has not failed Jesus has overcome the grave, and his resurrection is what? Is our receipt of our redemption and purpose, purchase, that our soul is atoned for and paid in full. So I want you to, okay, I want you to kind of capture where we are when we enter into the text in verse 10. They are on the bottom of the bottom. Because not only in their mind is their Savior dead, not only did he hang on a tree naked for the world to see, but now his body is missing. The last semblance of comfort that they have is that they could go visit his grave. 
If anybody in the room understands that comfort, that's where she's at. And now, in her mind, that's even been taken away from her. And so that is where we enter into the story in verse 10. Their faith is teetering on the edge. They're in the middle of a crisis of belief. And then Jesus meets them there. Notice verse 10 of chapter 20. So then the disciples, they saw the tomb empty. Then they went away again to their homes. But then notice verse 11. It says, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So where did Mary go? When the disciples went to their homes, Mary went where? Went back to the tomb. Verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Let me pause this. So Mary came to the tomb Sunday at sunrise. She left to go tell the disciples that his body is missing. Then she returns to the tomb. Why? To figure out what happened. But I want you to notice her emotional state. Because it's very important to understand kind of why she does what she does. Notice again in verse 11. The the English here, I'm just going to say something comparatively to the original language. The, The English here, we would say, is lame and tame, okay? It's just not enough. Because what we see is, it doesn't say, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. What word is used twice? And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Mary is not outside the tomb here, like crying one little tear, okay? She is outside of the tomb, absolutely distraught. The word weep here means to be completely undone, unstrung, completely and totally torn apart. Let me just ask you a question in the room. How many of you have ever been there before? You don't have to raise your hand on that one. Where you are just at the bottom of the bottom. That you are so unstrung that life doesn't even make sense and you don't even care if you get dressed, if you eat. That's Mary. And why do I say that she's that distraught? Notice what she does. Verse 12. And she saw... Two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus laid. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Okay, wait a second. She doesn't react. Most people who see angels kind of are a little shocked and stunned in the New New Testament. But here she just kind of casually discusses with them. Why? She sees them in white, but she is so distraught, she is so torn up that the body of her Savior is missing that she doesn't put two and two together. Notice then what she does later on, verse 14. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Notice that little phrase but did not know that it was Jesus. So she saw Jesus, but did not know it was Jesus. Why? Because she is undone. Verse 15. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She is so distraught. She is weeping so heavily. She doesn't really recognize the angels, and she doesn't even recognize the person that she is weeping for. She doesn't even recognize Jesus, and she thinks he's the gardener. But I love where Jesus meets her in the midst of this crisis of belief. 
Mary Magdalene is at a one or a negative one. She is ready to be done with the whole Jesus thing because Jesus is dead. He is gone. She doesn't know what to do. She's in distress. Her faith is teetering on the edge of the abyss. She's hanging on by a thread. And what I love about this passage is that Jesus does not come into this moment of a crisis of belief and does not scold her. But he is the good shepherd who calls her out by name. Verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She instantly knows what's going on. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, actually Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. I, when I was preparing this sermon this week, I loved the gentleness of Jesus, the good shepherd. He literally calls her by name. And he meets her in that hurt and in her undoneness that she's hanging on by a thread. And he meets her in that space and he gives her comfort and confirms to her that he is risen again. Jesus, if you have your notes, comforts the hurting How does the resurrection change your faith in the midst of crisis? The resurrection comforts the hurting. That seems strange. I mean, how can the resurrection, some 2,000 years later, how can the resurrection comfort us while we hurt? Is that true? How does that happen? Before I give you the answer to that question, I want you to notice verse 16. I'm going to kind of point out an observation. This is a kind of parallel railroad track. I'm kind of getting off of the weeds for just a moment. But I want you to see something with me. If you notice, what does she call Jesus? She calls him Rabbani. So let me ask you, true or false? True or false? The only two original languages in the Bible are Greek and Hebrew. It's false. There is one more. There is Aramaic. Pieces of Daniel, pieces of Ezra are written in Aramaic. And here, Mary speaks in Aramaic, which is what she speaks in. That's their native tongue. The New Testament was written in Greek so it could spread around the world. People knew that. And if you notice, the question, she says, Rabbani. And then notice in John, he adds, he explains what that means, which means teacher. Why? It's because the people who read Greek probably don't speak Aramaic, and they would not know what rabbi, the word rabbi, actually means. But the significance of her calling Jesus rabbi is highly significant. One scholar says this, her address to Jesus in Aramaic shows that she belonged to his flock. Turning to him, she cried out, Rabbani, an Aramaic title, a heightened form of rabbi, reflecting both affection and high regard. Jesus meets her in that space. He calls her by name, and instantly she knows what has happened. She turns to him and speaks to him a word of affection. But how does the resurrection... How does the resurrection change your faith in the midst of crisis? How does it give comfort to the hurting? Okay, when we actually answer that question, because something that happened 2,000 years ago doesn't really seem like it would give us much comfort in today's world. But think about, where are the, what are some other famous passages that talk about the resurrection? You talk about Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but where else? Where else? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Listen to this. This is talking about the rapture and the resurrection. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, Therefore comfort one another with these words. The resurrection comforts the hurting. How? Because it reminds us that there is a different world than this one. That one day our Savior will come and rescue us from this dumpster fire. Amen. It is a mess out there. If you are looking for hope in this world, you will be sorely disappointed. If you're looking for hope in Joe Biden or the president or any politician for that matter, you're going to be disappointed. The only hope, the only comfort really when you are hurting is knowing that Jesus will return. And that we will spend eternity with our loved ones that are believers in Jesus Christ. We will be rescued from this world. That is how it brings comfort to us, the resurrection. But then notice scene number 2, verse 19. It's the same day, it's Sunday. All of this happens on Sunday, which is why I did an extensive review and kind of painting the picture. Verse 19, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now notice two different things. It's Sunday, but why, number two, why are they behind closed doors? For fear of the Jews. Why are they fearful? Jesus is dead. He was buried. They don't know he's resurrected at this exact moment. And who are the chief priests? And scribes and Roman authorities looking for. They're looking for anybody associated with Jesus so they could kill them too. So they could prosecute them. The disciples are fearful. And then notice how they act. I want you to, I wanted to make a contrast with you. They are behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. What happens a month later in Acts chapter 2? They have this, this permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They then exit stage left. They are then bold and changed. Notice the contrast between the disciples. Here they are fearful, and there they are bold, proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they are fearful. Let me, let me ask you a question real quick. Two questions, in fact. Okay. Question number one. Has a tragedy in your life ever caused you to question your faith? If you say no to that, then you're probably not being realistic and not really dealing with it. But then question number two is, has fear ever caused you to doubt your faith? Have you ever been afraid to the point where you just want to walk away from it all? That's them. They're not sharing the gospel at this moment. They're, they're not even looking for the body. Okay? I mean, it's like they're not even looking for the Savior of the world. They just ran away into their homes and they're, they're hiding for fear of the Jews and they're, they're ready to walk away from it all for fear. They're afraid to be persecuted. Why? It's because all they hope for is dashed, defeated. It's all gone. They hope that Jesus would reign in his earthly kingdom from the city of Jerusalem. They hope that they would be on the thrones overseeing the 12 tribes of Israel, and it is all gone. And then notice again, keep going with me. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, love that, and stood in their midst and said to them, now if you were Jesus, and you know, you were imperfect, you would probably shame them here. You guys didn't get it already? Come on. But Jesus doesn't do that. What does he say? Peace be with you. 
The good shepherd meets them in that space. Verse 20, And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. How does the resurrection change your faith in the midst of crisis? The resurrection comforts the hurting because it reminds you that there's more to this world than, than this. And the resurrection, number two, com- confirms to the fearful God's promises. The moment they see Jesus go through those walls and enter into their presence, what do they immediately know? That Jesus is a man of his word, that he truly is the Lamb of God, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and all of the promises that he has made to the disciples will come to pass. At that exact moment, when Jesus is alive from the dead, he confirms to them God's promises. What promises has he made? A bunch. But one is Matthew chapter 19. He tells them that they will rule on the 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. In that alone, they know, oh my goodness, wait a second. Not only is Jesus alive from the dead, but we have no more reason to fear because all of the promises of God will come true. But then notice the three things Jesus leaves with him. Verse 21, he leaves with him peace. Verse 22, he leaves with him the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Then this is an anointing of the Holy Spirit, not the indwelling of the Spirit. Before Acts 2, the Spirit came upon people. After Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God permanently indwelt. And then number 3, Jesus leaves them with the forgiveness of sins. But then I want you to notice, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have forgiven them, and if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Whenever you're fearful, whenever you go through tragedy, what is one of our reactions as human beings? To blame other people for the problem? Can anybody relate to that one? What is Jesus saying here? You forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. Forgive one another. That's what he's saying. Because I have forgiven you, therefore you forgive one another. Jesus does not heap shame upon them. He says to forgive. But then notice scene number three. And I am running out of time. And I prepared a lot and I was afraid of that. Okay. But then I want you to notice the scene of the doubting Thomas, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now let me just speak. Faced with the exact same circumstance, we would be exactly like doubting Thomas. Because it's irrational. It's beyond our ability to comprehend that somebody would actually raise from the dead. We would be just like him. We give Thomas the nickname Doubting Thomas, but we're doubting too. We would be just like him. I mean, think about it. My, as you probably know, my, my, my father passed away six months ago. Okay? What if I went up to my sisters and I told them that I saw my dad alive from the dead? Okay? <laughs> they would think I was lost my mind. We're going to put Byron in a straitjacket and a loony bin. Okay? Because it's outside our ability to understand. Of course! Thomas doubts. Of course he doesn't understand. It is something miraculous, but beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. So now, fast forward eight days. It's no longer Sunday, but it's the following Monday. His disciples were again, notice that, again inside. They're still fearful. And Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, peace be with you, then Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it in my side. What is Jesus also showing here? He's showing that he is sovereign. 
He knows exactly what Thomas said. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. I love, I love this scene. Because Jesus, the good shepherd, calls Thomas by name, and he comes to him, and he doesn't shame him. He just says here, he invites him to sure up his doubt. If you are doubting God today, Jesus invites you. If you doubt the Bible, then seek your answer. If you doubt the love of God, then find his love, and your thirst will be quenched. Let me just say something real quick. We as Christians don't like people who ask questions, but I think questions and doubting is actually pretty healthy because that means that we're actually dealing with the root and real issues. Let me just speak to the parents in the room real quick. Don't smash your children when they ask you a question. Encourage their questions because, guess what? God can handle it. The Bible has their answer. Let me say this. The world will give an answer, right? Amen? The world will tell your child all at once about the faith in Jesus Christ and the Scripture. Don't smash them. Just answer them. And if you don't know, go and find it. Jesus here meets Thomas right in the midst of his doubt and shows him his hands and his feet. How does the resurrection change your faith in the midst of crisis? It comforts the hurting. It confirms to the fearful. And it causes certainty to the doubting because Jesus' presence before Thomas was an undeniable proof that the resurrection actually did happen. Today I spoke to you about faith, a crisis of faith, and if I can put this passage in a nutshell, it is this, that when you are ready to give up, remember that Jesus is alive. And when you are ready to give up, remember Jesus is alive. Let me say it one more time. If, when, remember, when you are ready to give up, remember that Jesus is alive, that there is hope in this world if you're looking for material things to satisfy your thirst, if you're looking to politicians in Washington, D.C. to satisfy your concerns, you're going to be looking for a long time, amen? When you are in doubt, when you're in the bottom of your faith, when you're in the crisis of belief, when you're in a one out of ten, remember that Jesus is alive and seek him. Before I close, I'm going to close with the question, so what? How do we take this and apply it to our life? What I'm going to do today is give you kind of four steps to kind of processing where you are in your faith and actually dealing with your level of faith. Today, I want you to really do a self-checkup, a spiritual self-checkup. For my application today, I just want you to kind of look at your faith and where you currently are in your relationship with God. How are you responding to God today? Where is your faith? On a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being you're ready to walk away from it all, and 10, you have never been stronger. On a scale of 1 to 10, where is your faith? Rate it. Question number two is diagnose the issue. If you're on the lower half, right, maybe you're nine and below, right, what is causing you to doubt or to be fearful or to question or to be hurting? What is really the root cause? Diagnose the issue. I mean, I'm going to really quickly do something. I want you to think about all of the Old Testament saints. One of the things I love about the scripture, there's a lot of things I love about it, it's just fun to talk about, but one of the things I love about it too is that all of the Old Testament saints are imperfect. They all show their warts and all. 
And you see the crisis of their belief. You see what has caused them to question and to disobey. Think about all of the things that have caused their crisis of faith. Fear in Abraham, Job in trials, uncertainty about the future, Jacob. Discouragement from the grind of life, Sarah. Tragedy, Naomi. An impossible calling, Elijah in 1 Kings. Doubt, Thomas. Self-doubt, Moses. Self-reliance, Samson. Temptation, David. What caused Saul the king to have a crisis of his belief? Impatience and bad influences Solomon. I want you to diagnose where your faith is. What I just mentioned are in your notes. Number two, I want you to diagnose where you are, the issue. And then number three, I want you to find encouragement in the past saints of old. If you have your notes, there should be a big long list on the back. If you identify with one of those, then go look up their story. But then number four, and I've got to close, is this. I want here. One of the measures that we have here at Calvary Bible Church that we're actually doing what the Lord has called us to do is mission measure says, how are you responding to God today? One of my purposes when I preach is that I hope it inspires you to grow in your relationship with God. If you're in the midst of a crisis, if you're in the midst of questioning your faith, one of the things I would encourage you to do also is go to the Psalms. If you, I don't know if any of you read the Psalms, but I read the Psalms all the time, every week, of, for literally the last 20 years of my life I've read the Psalms. And I can literally look at different Psalms in the Psalm book and picture where I was in my life at that exact moment, at that crisis of belief. I think about Psalm 22. <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, you know where I was on that day in my crisis of belief, okay? Psalm 27. Psalm 40, Psalm 51, Psalm 139. I mean, I can go on and on and on. I can read those psalms to this day and picture the crisis that I was dealing with at that exact moment. But that is the comfort of the Savior. That is the comfort of God in the psalms. He wants you to read it. And He wants you to understand and to seek Him. Because the Good Shepherd knows your faith. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows if you're in the midst of tragedy, hurting, or whether you're that or you're on cloud nine. He knows, and he wants you to seek him with all of your heart, mind, and soul. Let me close with a thought. This comes from Henry Blackaby, who had a book called Experiencing God, which talks about a crisis of belief. He says this, Christ will lead you. Christ will lead you into many situations that seem impossible. But don't try to avoid them. Stay in the middle of them, for that is where you will experience God. The key difference between what appears to be impossible to us and what is actually possible is a word from our Master. Faith accepts His divine command and steps out in a direction that only God can complete. If you only attempt things that you know are possible with the visible resources you possess... Those around you will then not see God at work. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, we see three different episodes, three different scenes of three different hurting people that you just come and you meet them in that space, the good shepherd, and you comfort the hurting. You make certain the doubting. And Lord, you confirm to the fearful your presence and your resurrection. 
And Lord, I pray for those that do not know your Savior, that do not know, have a personal relationship with you, for those that have never been born again, for those that have never been changed, I pray that you would come to them, that you would open their eyes to the truth, and that they would believe and trust you as Lord and Savior of your life. And Lord, I pray for those that do not know you. I pray that they would find me or others in the church to talk about it if they have further questions. Lord, thank you for this church, and I thank you for all of the ways you're working, and we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.